The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, you guys. Well, good morning. Uh, well, good morning. Well, I'll tell you, I just, it was, I called in sick to work today because I was, I was I had this cough thing going on. And I, for me, it is morning. I woke up just a few hours ago. So good, mor- <laughs> good morning to you guys. Um, Hey, my name is Jeremy Hamasu. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, Sam, Sam works really hard for you, and that's one thing I can see. That's true. He, if you've ever put together a worship set and then taught week after week, and Sam, you put together two worship sets on Sundays and Wednesdays, and then he turns over sermon after sermon. He works really hard for you. So he's asked me to come and just pinch hit for him. And you know, when, when Sam asked me to pinch hit for him, I, it reminded me of a story. Um, a pastor who had been turning over sermon after sermon after sermon for a long time. He was an older guy. He was just getting tired. You know, he just wanted a little break. He just wanted a little to, to just, you know, relax a little bit. So what happened is he woke up one Sunday morning and he said, ah, I can't do it. And so he called his associate pastor and he said, hey, hey, buddy. Uh, and he's, <laughs> you know, he's acting sick. And and he said, hey, can you uh, fill in for me? And, and the associate pastor says, absolutely, I can fill in for you. So uh, he hangs up the phone, and the first thing he does, he looks outside. It's 75 degrees. It's beautiful. He jumps out of bed. He grabs his golf clubs. He throws them in the back of his car, and he takes off down the freeway three, uh, three hours north where nobody will know his name. And as he's driving down the freeway, uh, Peter and Jesus are looking down, and they see him, and Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, do you see what he's doing? He totally lied to the associate pastor. He's ditching out on the congregation. Jesus, you got, you can't let him get away with this. You can't, you better. And Jesus just says, Peter, I know just the thing. So the guy gets out of his car and he goes onto the first hole of the golf course and he tees up his ball and then he winds up and just lets it rip and the ball soars it's the greatest hit of his life it's 300 yards in the air it lands in the middle of the fairway it takes a generous hop plops onto the green and then rolls and lands right in the cup it's a hole in one now this pastor is thinking i have golfed for 20 years and i've never hit a hole in one he's freaking out he's celebrating you know he's running around the green with his finger in the air and Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I thought you said you were going to do something about this. He, he totally ditched out on church today. And Jesus says, Peter, relax. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 Sam's not, not golfing on you. Or he's not golfing. He's not skipping out. Sam works really hard. And, uh, you know, can we just give Sam some love if you appreciate what he does for you guys? Well, I get to speak with you guys about Ruth, and I'm excited about it. Um, I just want to warn you, I've had, if, the, if the next half an hour is anything like the last 24 hours, I'll have some coughing fits. So I told the guys, no, no microphone like this to try to spare you guys when I do, but I apologize for that. Um, let's pray, and then let's jump into this. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the people you've brought here Um, we thank you for the promise that you're here with us and you're never going anywhere. We thank you that we don't have to ask you to be here with us, but Lord, we do pray that you would align our hearts so that we might be able to receive of the good things that you have for us today. 
May we learn from you. May we learn about you. Um, and Lord, I just pray personally that anybody who walks away from here will have a good handle on the book of Ruth and be able to uh, use this to grow and allow it to impact their life. So we pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Amen. A lot of large portions of scripture, especially in the Old Testament, are dedicated to times when God reaches into time and space and miraculously, powerfully, beautifully changes a circumstance that seemed impossible or at least improbable. And we love those stories. Who doesn't love a miracle? Who doesn't like reading about David, this kid who takes up a sling and a stone and brings down the enemy of Israel? And who doesn't love hearing about Moses who raises up his staff and the waters part and Israel is delivered from Egypt? And who doesn't love a good miracle? And they're beautiful. But the reason I like Ruth is because it's beautiful in a different way. While the characters in Ruth talk about God and they have conversations surrounding him, the narrator in the book of Ruth never once mentions God and definitely doesn't mention God reaching down and changing anything miraculous. But it only takes a quick 15-minute read through the four chapters and you can see that God's fingerprints are all over the book of Ruth from beginning to end. And I like that. I don't know if you guys ever feel like me, and I can say this because I'm not a pastor. I was a teacher. I'm just, I don't even know what I am. I'm not qualified to be up here, Sam. You must be really desperate. But <laughs> um, sometimes I go to church and I hear people, not you, but I hear people preaching and pastors talking. And, and you know, they tell their great stories of all the, like, miraculous things that they see. And, and, and you sit there and you're like, wow, those are great. Well, actually, there's a great example the other day when uh, Jeffrey Gilbert came and spoke to us, and he just gave a great sermon talking about uh, Save the Storks. And, and, you know, he told that story about how he was kind of at his wit's end in life, and he was on his knees, and he was praying to God, and it's midnight or whatever. And, and he's, you know, he doesn't know what to do in his life, and he looks up, and he goes, there are those eyes of fire before me, and I heard the voice of God. And, and you know, when I hear stories like that, part of me just goes, wow, that, that's incredible, that's, that's beautiful, that's awesome, and it's so encouraging to know that the Lord still does miraculous things today. But there's another, if I'm completely honest, there's another fleshly part of me that when I hear stories like that, I go, come on, man. <laughs> why, you gotta, why you gotta tell me that story? Because I never get eyes of fire showing up in my living room. You know, I never see the miraculous things I go to work for. 7.45 and get off at 4 and, you know, my life just seems pretty natural and I don't have, like, the miracles coming down. But I love the book of Ruth because it reminds you and it reminds me that even though you might not see drastic changes and alterations and the impossible happening in your life, it does not mean that the fingerprints of God aren't all over your story from beginning to end. That's an encouragement to me. The book of Ruth was written uh, around the time of David's reign, so probably around the time of 1000 BC. It was written, they don't know who exactly written, Jewish tradition says it was Samuel, but that's conjecture. Um, probably the reason it was written, David in his older age, being king, wanting to remember 
some of the stories of his past, stories of his family, and he would have had a soft spot in his heart for stories of humble beginnings and glorious endings, being that he came from humble beginnings as well, probably asked a guy like Samuel to write down this story for him. Um, like I said, written in 1000 BC. But the, the beautiful thing about the Old Testament narratives um, is that there's really more than one narrative playing out at one time. So if you guys have this sheet, Sam always has nice sheets for you, so I felt like I had to do the same thing. Although I didn't know what to make you write, so I didn't ask questions. But this it has been a, a book, a piece from a book that really helped me understand the Bible a little better. And I got to tell you, just as a little rabbit trail side note, I got it for free online, a PDF download. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And this really helped me wrap my mind around the different genres in the Bible. And it's a simple read for simple people. So if, if you're not like a college graduate or I don't know, if you're like me, I just need something simple that helps me to understand. And I pulled this excerpt out for us. And it says this, um, it will help you as, re as you read the Old Testament narratives to realize that the story is being told in effect on three levels. The top level is that of the whole universal plan of God worked out through his creation. Key aspects of this plot at the top le level are initial creation itself, the fall of humanity, the power and ubiquity of sin, the need for redemption, and Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. This top level is often referred to as the story of redemption or redemptive history. We've heard a lot about that at Heritage. Key aspects of the middle center level center on Israel. The call of Abraham, the establishment of an Abrahamic lineage through the patriarchs, the enslaving of Israel and Egypt, God's deliverance from bondage and the conquest of the promised land of Canaan, Israel's frequent sins and increasing disloyalty, God's patient protection and pleading with them, the ultimate destruction of northern Israel and then of Judah and the restoration of the holy people after exile. And then there is the bottom level. Here are found all the hundreds of individuals, uh, of individual narratives that make up typo, that make up the other two levels, the narrative of how Joseph's brothers sell him to Arab caravaneers heading for Egypt, the narrative of Gideon, Gideon's doubting, and in our case here today, the narrative of Ruth and Boaz. And I'm not reading anymore, sorry if that threw you off. <laughs> Three narratives. And so when we look at Ruth, you have this narrative taking place at the lowest level concerning a woman sinning around a woman who really, if you read the book of Ruth carefully, you'll see that the sinner doesn't actually, sin, or the theme, the story doesn't actually center around Ruth. The story really centers around Naomi. And Naomi is the central character who, contrary to popular belief, is really a wonderful woman and who is love and mag loved and magnetic to the point where when she comes over from Bethlehem down to Moab and she loses her husband and her two sons and she decides to go back up to Bethlehem, the women that are with her don't want to leave her. Orpah tags along with her, and she tells her twice, no, you need to go back to your family. You need to go back to your family. And it's only in tears that Orpah leaves. Ruth refuses to leave her side. Now, as Naomi comes back to Bethlehem after a 10-year absence, she comes in, and it says the whole town is stirred. 
There's a buzz going on because Naomi is back after 10 years. Everybody's excited. Everybody's looking to see what's happened. Where's Naomi been? What's her story? Now, Boaz is kind to Ruth because Ruth is kind to Naomi. So Boaz cares so much for Naomi that the people who are kind to her, he will be kind too. And at the end of the story, when Ruth has a child, it says the women of Bethlehem come to Naomi and say, the Lord has given, the Lord has given you a child. This is a woman who was loved and cared for and magnetic. I like to call her the mother hen. <laughs> but she's bitter. And she's bitter because she feels like the Lord has neglected her or left her because she lost her two boys and she lost her husband. On this first level, you also have Ruth, who was a beautiful young woman who, who is virtuous. She's a Moabite Gentile woman, but she's a virtuous woman, and, and she's bold and courageous. She's the type of woman who will come up to Boaz and ask him to marry her. She's bold. But she's also selfless and humble. She'll submit herself to the will of Naomi, and she'll submit herself to the will of Boaz. And she's this counterbalance that you don't often see. Uh, a lot of people liken it unto the woman of P Proverbs 31. She's a P31 woman. And then you have Boaz, a man filled with integrity, a godly man. He's an older man, and he's very rich. <laughs> He has the means to take care of other people. And so you have this lower level playing out. But if you look at the story, the story really, if you raise it up a narrative, if you go up one level, the story fits perfectly into the narrative of Israel as they're inserted, as Ruth and her line is inserted into the lineage of King David and also eventually Matthew 1, King Jesus. Ruth is the great grandmother of King David. And on the highest level, you have a beautiful story of redemption in dark days. I don't know if you were here last week, but Sam was talking about judges. Ruth 1.1 says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Ruth, written during David's time, 1000 BC, was written about an earlier time of the judges. And if you were here last week, Sam talked all about the judges. And I left last week going, oh, not because the sermon was bad. <laughs> but, but, but that's never the case. I left like with a, a pit in my stomach because the time of the judges was a dark time. You have a judge named Abimelech who's killing 69 of his half-brothers. You have a judge named Micah who's hiring somebody to start a new religion, and he's supposed to be leading people for the Lord. Then you have another unnamed leader who takes a concubine for himself, and then when the when these sex-hungry men of the town come and surround the house, he lets them take the concubine, and, and they rape her, and she dies. And it's just a gross, ugly book. And then the Lord says, now it was in the time of the judges that the story of Ruth takes place. As if to say that even in dark times, in a dark place, there's still 
towns like Bethlehem, where people care about the Lord, where people love the Lord, where people are concerned about their reputation like Boaz and Ruth, where people want to do things the right way like Boaz does, where people still have an integrity. And it's in this larger context that Ruth takes place. Now, I, I don't want to get too far into the details and assume that everybody here knows the book of Ruth or is still acquainted, so I've had the fellas uh, cue up a, a quick little video that I want to catch, and I'm only going to show, uh, guys, four minutes and 30 seconds. That's about the cutoff, because I'm a little bit OCD, and I'm not a big fan of the message that's sent at the end. Not that it's bad or wrong, but it just doesn't fit the flow of where I want to go today. So I'm going to have them roll this video for you, four minutes and 30 seconds, and I think this will help those of you who might not be familiar with the story of Ruth to become acquainted with The it. Book of Ribs. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled, and it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine, and so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there, the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore, and so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard, and so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi, and she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, and she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi. of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed. And Naomi finds out that Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land, and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and...
All right, let's stop the video. Close of <laughs> let's do it. I'll tell the story. So this, the video ends. What happens is Ruth, uh, Naomi actually encourages Ruth to go talk to Boaz and go through this cultural tra tradition where she goes and lays down at his feet while he's sleeping in the barley harvest. And, and it's kind of weird. It's kind of different. It's an ancient Near East tradition that they used to do, um, guys. I know that you wish that it still worked that way, but it doesn't and it won't, okay? So she goes to Ruth while he's, or she goes to Boaz while he's sleeping, and what happened, takes place is she says, hey, take me to be your wife. And Boaz does something interesting. He says, I, would, I will do this, but we have to go the right way. There's another kinsman redeemer who's closer to you than I am, and we have to go ask him. So even though he cares for this woman, he still chooses to go about it the right way. So he goes to the city, uh, the gates of the city where the leaders would be, and he says, hey, uh, and he asks the guy, he says, hey, do you want Ruth, or do you want this land, is what he says, uh, Naomi's land. And the guy says, yeah, I'll take it. I'll, I'll redeem that land. And he says, well, here's the thing. If you redeem that land, you're also going to get Ruth as your wife. And he goes, uh, second thought, I don't think I want to do that. So Boaz takes and redeems the land, and he takes Ruth for himself as his wife, and they live happily ever after. He redeems both Ruth, and in doing so, he takes care of Naomi. And it says at the end of, at the end of Ruth, it's a beautiful thing, there's a genealogy, and it says that Boaz and Ruth, they have a child named Obed, and Obed has a child named Jesse, and Jesse has a child named David. And we know that it was through the line of King David that our Savior, our great Redeemer, would come. Now, sorry the video didn't work out, uh, but a couple things. One of, the, one of the strategies that I like to use when I read the Bible is um, not to just take it and straight apply it to my life. When I was younger, I used to open the Bible and read, and, I, and I'd say, I'd read a scripture and talk about chariots and horses, and I'd go, okay, what does that mean for me? And I'd be like, well... I better run harder and go faster for the Lord. And then I'd read maybe another story, and it'd be about food. And I'd be like, I don't really know what to do with this one, but I guess I should eat healthier or something like that. You know? And I try to apply it to me. One of the strategies that I found that is much more healthy when I read the Bible is I always ask myself, when I take a piece of scripture, I ask myself, what does this say about God? Because when I read the word, primarily my goal is to learn about him. And the beautiful thing is, is once you learn about him, there will always be a runoff for you and for me. But I like to do things in that order. And if that helps you, if that's a strategy that works, I know it's helped me a lot when I read the Bible. What does this tell me about God? And what does this mean for me only after that? So that's what we're going to do. We're kind of taking a different angle, which is part of the reason I didn't want to show the end of the video. Um, what does this story of Ruth tell us about God? Number one, I would say... God's plan is comprehensive. We, my wife and I bought a house a little while ago, and it has this little tiny yard. Like, the yard is literally smaller than this stage. And I wanted to make it bigger, and I thought, hey, well, should be easy. Anytime you want to do a little project, it's, you just do it. So 
I mean, it's just a yard, so what do I do? I go to Walmart, I find the cheapest grass I can find, the seed, and then I just say, perfect, and I go and I throw it all over the yard. Well, the grass starts to grow. First of all, it grows three times faster than the other grass that I have, so I have half my grass that looks like it's about to be like, like, you know, hay turned into hay bales, and the other grass looks normal, and then it's bright neon green, and I'm like, my goodness, what did I do here? So then I'm like, all right, well, I guess I got to change the plan a little bit. And then I go back and, and I get a shovel because I'm too cheap to go buy an actual grass thing that takes out the grass. And I'm sitting there in my front yard digging out this grass with a shovel. And then I plant a different seed. I just go back and I say, this one says dark green. So I throw it on there. And, and it's in the middle of summer. And I don't realize that grass doesn't grow in the middle of summer. And so it's just a dead, barren, dry land. And then I go ask the guy at Grange Co-op, and I say, what do I need to do? And he's like, you need to wait till October and then plant your grass. And of course, October goes by, and it's like October 30th, and I still haven't planted the grass. And then finally, I throw the seed, and maybe it might be growing. I don't know. But you see, I have a tendency to just kind of make my plans haphazardly, but that is not the way the Lord works. And I think the book of Ruth beautifully portrays this in that the story of Ruth is taking place, and you've got all these characters, or I don't like to say characters, all these people who are going about the story of Ruth, yet they don't even see that what's taking place there is fitting into a much larger context. Their little piece of the puzzle, their story is a piece of puzzle that fits into the greater picture that is the story of Israel, leading from the dark days of the judges to brighter days, the dawn when King David is on his way. Now, the implications are this. God, I'm going to rewind, actually, rewind button, play. Before we get to the implications, this is one of the things I want you to see. God is the Goodyear blimp above the parade. He's looking down, and he can see all the parts and pieces playing out at the same time. He can see the beginning. He can see the end. God's like the war general that's commanding the Allied troops, and as Eisenhower said, leading the Allied troops to absolute victory over the German war machine. He has the whole picture. He has the whole plan. But for us... When we are living out this plan, sometimes we're just the guy on the side of Main Street looking for a Tootsie Roll from a clown as the parade goes by. For us, sometimes we're the soldier that's in the trench and all we see is the fog of war. We don't see the greater plan. Yet Ruth tells us that God has a greater plan. He has a great mission. He has a bigger picture. And sometimes we don't get that. And the implication for it is this. If you take a character like Naomi... We have a tendency to look at her and we say, great, it ends so happily. Ruth has a child. Happy ending, good, redeemed, great. But in the reality of day-to-day -day life, a woman like Naomi still had gone through some terrible, terrible things. She might have lived her life and died not knowing the greater plan of God. She might have lived her life and died, and though happy about Ruth's child, still torn and broken and wounded from the loss of her husband and her two kids. And she might have died someday not knowing that she would be part of the family of the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, or the great King David. She might have lived her life and never understood that. 
And the implications for us are this. God's plan is comprehensive, and sometimes in our lives, we feel, and in our Western way of thinking especially, we have a tendency to feel that we're entitled to explanations of why things happen in our life, and we'll bend and contort our lives to make a picture that makes sense for us of how this bad thing happened, but it was so good in that way. But the truth of the matter is, we might never know why the difficult things that come into our lives played out the way they did. And that's kind of discouraging in a sense. But the encouraging part is this. If you are a child of God, you absolutely play a part in his greater plan. And the things you go through and the difficult times that we have have a purpose and a meaning and a greater plan. And don't ever sell yourself short, but also don't make the mistake of thinking what so many pastors are saying when they say that your life not speaking of the internal, not thinking, speaking of the eternal, but your life that you live out is going to be a great and awesome adventure that's wonderful if you just serve God because that's not necessarily true. Some people like Naomi might go through very difficult times and the Lord never promises us that if we just choose to put our life in him that now suddenly our life is some awesome Disneyland ride. For some of us, it's very difficult. And all he says is he challenges us to take up our cross and follow him, whether times are good and difficult or anywhere in between. And we're not no owed an explanation, but we can trust that he has a greater plan and we're a part of it. Number one, God's plan is comprehensive. Number two, God sovereignly, God sovereignly works out his redemptive plan. I love the story of Ruth. Like I said, fingerprints from beginning to end. The Lord is all over it. But if one thing doesn't go right, Ruth's family is no longer in the lineage of the Messiah. If one thing, if, if Naomi doesn't go down to Moab, the whole story falls apart. If Ruth doesn't feel a tie to Naomi, the whole story falls apart. If Ruth isn't such a good woman and goes into pick up after the harvesters, whatever crumbs fall down, the whole story falls apart. If Boaz doesn't have a connection with Ruth, the whole story comes apart. And you can see that the Lord is sovereignly guiding this plan from beginning to end to serve his story, to serve as a foreshadow for us of redemption on God's greater plan. Now, we often forget that God's plan is working out and God's going to bring about his redemption. <clears throat> Everything has to go just right in the story of Ruth. Otherwise, it all comes apart. And the God, I think it's interesting that in the story, it takes place in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Do you guys remember the scripture, Micah 5, 2? It says, to you, it says but you, a prophecy, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a word for people who are from Bethlehem. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It was God who prophesied through Micah that the Savior, the great Redeemer, would come through Bethlehem. Now if you hit the fast forward button 700 years, you'll see a man and his pregnant wife named Mary is carrying Jesus 
But the problem is they're in Galilee. And she's about to give birth. And God prophesied in Micah that she would give birth in Bethlehem. So what takes place? God literally stirs the nations. And he plants a seed in Caesar Augustus' mind that all the world should be taxed and registered in their home city. So while she's pregnant, they're forced to go on a track. And they go from Galilee all the way back down to Joseph's hometown to be registered based on what Caesar Augustus said. And then Jesus is born. And I see again that God sovereignly brings about his redemptive plan. And the beautiful implication for us is this, that the God who has the power to stir the nation to redeem his plan and to stay true to his word has also said that I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you and nothing will pluck you out of the palm of my hand. The God with the power to move the world is the power that holds you in his hand. And I find great comfort in that. Number one, God's plan is comprehensive. Number two, he carries about, he sovereignly carries about his redemptive plan. And number three, God welcomes the cursed into his family. God welcomes the cursed into his family. Not only was Ruth a woman, not only was she poor, not only was she an immigrant, not only was she a Gentile, but she was a Moabite. And historically, the Moabites never got along with the Israelites. They oppressed the Israelites for a time during the judges. They also withheld good things from the Israelites Historically, they also served their own gods. In fact, the founding of the Moabite people was based on a relationship, an incestuous relationship between a father and a daughter. And it's for all these reasons that in Deuteronomy 25, the Lord curses the Moabites. And he says, you will not enter the gathering place of my people for 10 generations. Most likely, people think that he's saying 10 generations is a figure of speech. He's saying, you will never, you are cursed. You will never enter the gathering of my people. But it's interesting because you flip over to Matthew 1 and you see Ruth, a Moabite, is right in the family line of Jesus Christ himself. And you have to ask yourself, how did a cursed Moabite make it into the family of God? And it's in this that I see a beautiful picture for us. And I think it's typified right in the second chapter of Ruth. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. It's Ruth 2.12, and it said, Ruth's asking why Boaz is being so kind to her. And Boaz replies, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Catch this. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And there's a beautiful picture there. That Boaz is a type of Christ. That Ruth is a type of the church. Gentile. Cursed. Outcast. We, the church, had nothing to offer. We were under the curse of sin. Yet when you take refuge under the wing of the Lord, he brings you in. Like Boaz brought in Ruth, the Lord brings us into his family when we take refuge under his wing. And he gives us care. And he cares for us. And he puts us under his wing. And he brings us into the family of God. And Ruth had nothing to offer Boaz. Ruth was under the curse. Yet it was that one thing, she came into the family of God, and the Lord lifted the curse, and she has entered into the line of Jesus Christ.
I'm so glad that the Lord has redeemed us. I owe my salvation to it. I was a Gentile, as many of us here are. The Japanese were not in the Jewish family. <laughs> but the Lord has brought us in, and now we can sing the song of the redeemed. Whatever that song is, I'm excited to learn it. <laughs> it probably sounds like the one we sing. What is it? Will you sing with me? I've been redeemed. Come on. By the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed. By the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Filled with the Holy Ghost I am. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. May God allow us to trust his comprehensive plan. May God allow us to take comfort in the fact that he works sovereignly his redemptive plan. And may God allow us to take comfort in the fact that he's welcomed the cursed into his family. And may we do these things not by discipline. May we grow in these truths not by discipline, but when, may we grow in these things as we look at the cross and we see our great redeemer fulfilling the work of redemption. And instead of being disciplined, may we be moved by the gospel. Thank you, guys. Lord, we just pray that you would have these things take root in our life, and may we grow in these. Thank you for the opportunities you give all of us. I pray that we would use them to glorify you to the greatest degree that we can. Father, may we trust your plan in our lives, not because things are easy, but because we see you on a cross, and we know if you are willing to go to the cross for us, you obviously are willing to give us the best, whatever they, that may be, even if it's difficult. We thank you that you are sovereignly in control, and we can trust you. We commit these to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night, you guys.